Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that will transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm talking to Aaron Stoll, an attorney who works primarily as a consumer advocate. He's based in Overland Park, Kansas, and he practices in bankruptcy, foreclosure defense, real estate, business, and entertainment law. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bob. Thanks a lot. Now, did I get that all right? Because that was five different practice areas. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I don't practice as much in some of the, the ones you mentioned at the very end, but you know, always looking for new type of business. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I could see how bankruptcy, foreclosure, defense, and real estate tie together. Business and entertainment law was kind of the odd one out. Well, I, I found, though, that a lot of my clients, especially uh, clients who have small businesses, sometimes need some consulting in different areas. And so I've tried to branch out into that a little bit. And also because I am somewhat of a, a part-time writer, I guess, um, I, entertainment law kind of interested me, and I've been trying to branch out into that a little bit, too. Okay. Well, so the business side, I guess Chapter 11, that totally makes sense. I didn't. I was thinking more contract law or something like that. Well, actually, I, I have done a lot of stuff with contracts, but uh, you know, I have many clients that were in like Chapter 13s or even Chapter 7s, who were small business owners and they just needed advice on maybe how to, you know, bump up their business a little bit, maybe do some marketing, maybe how to cut back on some costs, things like that. So I've tried to add that as part of my practice. That's great. And that actually brings me to my next question, which was, it looks like you worked after graduating and then you got a master's degree in e-commerce and that's, it looked like a, a joint degree with a business school. So I can see where you started to get your business expertise. And, and then you worked some more, and then you went back to law school. So that was my first question. What made you go back to law school? Well, it was one of those things. My, my wife always says it's because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, right? <laughs> so it's one of those type of things. But, yeah, I, my timing was, was impeccable, I think, because when I had gone back to uh, graduate school uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, of course, at that time, what happened, you know, the dot-com bust and whatnot, um, and there just wasn't a whole lot of, uh, of stuff going on. So after I graduated at Carnegie Mellon, it was a, sort of a joint program between the business school and the School of Computer Science. Uh, I started working for a, a big oil firm, uh, ExxonMobil, mm -hmm. and uh, did some strategic planning and things like that. Uh, basically, it's kind of a, a glorified bean counter, if you will. But Learned a lot of stuff there about big organizations and you know, kind of how all of that works together. But after three years there, I, I decided, you know, I wanted to kind of move the family back to the Midwest because I was located on the East Coast at that time around the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking, well, what could I get into that, that might allow me to utilize some of my background a little bit, business, technology, other things like that. And I decided that, you know, going into the law might be a good area. Mm -hmm. um, I also had kind of wanted to work for myself for quite some time. So that, that kind of played into that as well. So we kind of moved back to the Midwest. I went to law school. Of course, my timing was uh, perfect again uh, during the time I graduated because that's when the mortgage meltdown happened. Well, the first time you were being a little facetious, perhaps, but, you know, <laughs> The second time, that the mortgage crisis, I guess it started in 2008, but it really peaked at 2010. So you did have a number of years where, I mean, those were boom years for bankruptcy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, basically, when I got out of law school, there really wasn't anybody uh, hiring lawyers at that time. And so, you know, I did want to work for myself anyway. So I said, well, I'm just going to do what I can and, and see where the need is. 
And there were so many people that were going through foreclosures at that time. I just said, all right, I'm going to just plow into this. And, and I actually had started doing foreclosure defense first, mm-hmm. um, but then started segueing into bankruptcies because, well, there was a big need for it. You could make some good money at it. Plus, it, it just seemed to fit naturally with a lot of folks who were facing foreclosure and kind of needed that help anyway. Mm-hmm. That is pretty unusual, though, for someone to hang their own shingle right away. How was that experience for you? Trial by fire. <laughs> you know, there were times where I kind of wondered, uh, what the heck am I doing here? Yeah. But, you know, just kept pushing through, developed kind of a marketing plan for myself and started building my practice, started doing what I needed to do, get more clients, get referrals, anything and everything, basically. You know, I tried a lot of different stuff and, you know, whatever was working, it, it, that's what I kind of stuck with. And just kept going until it, you know, built up to where I was, you know, really able to support myself and family and, and whatnot. Initially, I I did take like some part-time jobs in the evenings to kind of make ends meet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you do what you have to when you're a solo. Yeah, I definitely want to drill down on that. But before we started the interview, you told me a funny story about your first bankruptcy case. I was wondering if you could tell that for, for our audience. Sure, absolutely. So... My very first case, I was just a complete rookie, probably didn't ask as many questions as I should have, but I had some clients. We went to the meeting with the bankruptcy trustee, and uh, we're sitting there. Trustee's asking the, the 20 to 25 different questions that they typically ask, and they get to the one about, have you made any transfers in the past two years? <laughs> and, of course, my clients start talking about, well, yes, we had this boat, and we transferred it to my dad. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the trustee's, like, leering at me and looking, did you know about this? I'm like, no, I, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. So, you know, she's really drilling my clients. One of my clients was about to faint. Uh, I get her some water. She starts to be okay. You know, anyway, we finally finish up. We get out in the hallway, and there's this this older attorney. He's very well-known attorney. But anyway, he's filed thousands of bankruptcy cases and was getting toward the, the end of his retirement at that time. And, you know, I was just devastated out there in the hallway. And he comes up to me and he says, don't worry about it. It happens to all of us. And I was just like, oh, man. So I felt so much better. Now, be honest. You said that your client was about to faint, but this was your first bankruptcy case. Were you about to faint as well? Did you get some water for yourself? Uh, well, I probably could have used some. I mean, <laughs> I, although if you if you had seen me afterwards, it looked like I may have been doused with water with all the sweating <laughs> I was doing. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a learning experience, though. That is that's a hilarious story. I'd like to return back to what you did in those early days to get started. I actually learned some amazing things that people did to get started, particularly in bankruptcy. Sure. What, what, was, what were some of the things that worked and maybe some of the things that you tried that were complete failures? If you have any stories for us on those lines. You know, initially I tried doing like the Google route, um, but I was finding that unless you've got like a ton of money and can and pour that in from there and you've got like a really good strategy and whatnot, which I thought I did, but obviously didn't, mm-hmm. you know, you're probably not going to be able to compete with the big boys in the bankruptcy arena. Uh-huh. You know, every city's got maybe four or five bigger firms and they just spend a lot of money on, on Google, you know, AdWords and whatnot. So mm-hmm. smaller guys... Uh, really don't have a lot of ability there. So what I was thinking was is that, okay, I have to be more nimble. I have to use, you know, what I can. And I was pretty good with, with technology and whatnot. And so 
I was finding uh, a lot of foreclosure notices online. Mm -hmm. And so my idea was I'm just going to scrape these off the websites, create my database, send out a mailer, you know, offering my services for help. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And I was able to send stuff out regularly. And, you know, I got fairly good response and just started building it from there. You know, that was for basically the foreclosure defense stuff. Many of those clients also needed bankruptcy services. Mm -hmm. So that kind of played in a little bit later. But once I started getting good on the bankruptcies, getting those rolling in, I started just buying some names for people who had judgments against them. And I was able to do that. You know, again, I was creating databases, doing my own mailers, all that type of stuff. Yeah, okay, well, let's, let's stop for a moment, Aaron. Yeah. I'd like to unpack a little bit of what you're saying. Okay. Um, you're talking about building a database and then you're just saying doing a mailing, but in order to do that, you need to write a direct response sales letter. Yeah. And you need to know a little bit about copywriting at least. That's right. So did you know anything about copywriting? Did you know anything about direct response in those days? Well, in a previous lifetime, I had done a little bit of marketing stuff. And so plus, you know, I had done some writing in law school. I actually had done like some rewrites on screenplays and stuff for some Hollywood producers. So I I felt like I at least knew how to write fairly well. Mm -hmm. It was just a matter of figuring out what's the right tone, what's the right message. And I I did put together sort of a one-pager Kept it short and simple, highlighted different strong points that I thought would be appealing to individuals that had just gotten a judgment against them, for example, or were facing a foreclosure. Uh, And actually, I had different letters for those facing foreclosure versus those who had judgments against them. And, And timing was a big part of this as well, because... I would get the judgments, the notices of those names and addresses and whatnot. I would get those like soon after those judgments had been granted. Mm-hmm. And and I would mail them out like every week I would do a mailing. Mm-hmm. And I was finding that I was getting a lot of phone calls off of that. And people were basically like, I just got notice of this judgment and I got your letter the same day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> were a lot of them default judgments? So they didn't even know that, that they had a, a case against them? Yes, actually. The, yep. There were many of them that were just default judgments, you know, credit card companies, whoever it may have been. And so, you know, once I got that rolling and got that going pretty much every week, I mean, it was it was going pretty good at that point. And, you know, you'd be surprised people call up and they're panicking and whatnot, because, you know, a lot of times people had no idea, like you say, that they even had a judgment out there. Or there may be times where people knew they had one, but they just didn't want to face it Mm -hmm. until they got my letter. And then they said, "Okay, well, hey, it doesn't hurt to give a call. Right. Find out what what my options are. Absolutely. Honestly, I was finding that, that most people just didn't have any idea of what bankruptcy could do for them. Mm -hmm. They just had had either not thought about it or had written it off or were afraid or had misinformation. And so that's part of what I did with my letter to them was to kind of identify what it could or couldn't do for you. And that really when you come to look at it, it's often the the most affordable, the least time-consuming, and the most effective way to deal with debt. Yeah, that's the biggest marketing mistake I see bankruptcy lawyers make, which is they don't explain the general benefits of bankruptcy to their prospect. They don't explain that it's the only legal way to eliminate debt. Even things like, yeah, you have to pay taxes on unforgiven debt. I mean, these things are, right. it's it's old hat to a bankruptcy lawyer, but it's mind-blowing to, a, to someone who doesn't know anything about bankruptcy. Yep, absolutely. And neither, you know, neither should they know anything about it. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's your responsibility to explain. Yeah, and that's what a great sales letter can do. Yeah. So did you actually measure response rate? I did. And how did, how did do, you, do you remember any of those results? I was I was averaging about 5% response rate, so, you know, 5% calls, and I would close probably at least half of those. That is amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, if I could get them in the door, that was the that was the key. I mean, they were going to they were going to come in and, and sign up, you know. Mm-hmm. And usually I would I would spend some time with them on the phone. That's one thing maybe a lot of other attorneys didn't do. I would probably spend a lot more time on the phone with the client initially kind of explaining the process, explaining, you know, what what it all involves, kind of getting a feel for whether they were even a good candidate for bankruptcy before I would even have them come in. Uh-huh. And, you know, I would be blunt with them. If it didn't sound like they were a good candidate, I would just tell them, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to waste your time. And if it's not going to work for you, then, you know, there's other things that you can do. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of people that appreciated that. And I got a lot of referrals from people that didn't end up filing bankruptcy. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So there are benefits to honesty in life. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, you talk about just mailing, but how many letters were you sending out a week? Because, I mean, I'm presuming that you're doing this with paper that you buy from Office Depot and your HP laser printer and you're folding. Absolutely. All this. So uh, how many letters and how long did, how long did you take every week uh, banging out these letters? Well, I mean, that's that's the part that would take a little bit of time. The kids are really good at folding paper and putting them in envelopes, I found. So yes. <laughs> sometimes you have some little helpers there to, to help you out a little bit. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I mean, I it depended on, on how many judgments there were, you know, and sometimes I would kind of cherry pick the judgments too. If there was something that I could tell was, was something that probably wouldn't be somebody who was likely to respond and maybe I wouldn't bother with it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I would just send mail out to whoever, you know, who had a judgment against them mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, go with it from there. But yeah, I, there were times where maybe I would send 500 to a thousand a week. Wow. So Yeah. But with a five percent response rate, I mean, you're getting fifty calls a week. That's that. That's a that's great not, week. Not too bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, direct mail is often underused and has a very attractive return on advertising investment. So I'm very impressed by what you did there. No, oh, thank you. I did honestly. There was it took a, a, a while for me to just you know kind of get the process down and figure out what it was that I needed to do. But once I did, it was just cranking out the, the sausage you know, machine there, you know, just grinding it out and doing it every time. And, and that was really the key for me was just being consistent and doing it like every week. Because I, there were other people that I knew, other attorneys that were would send stuff out. Maybe they would send stuff out like, you know, once a month or every two months or whatever. Well, in my view, that was too late yeah. because I already, I already beat you to the punch. Mm-hmm. But you would do it, you wouldn't do it the day of the judgment or the day after the judgment was filed. You do it maybe every Friday or whatever your day was. You do it once a week. Yeah, I, yeah, once a week. And you know, it wasn't an everyday thing. It was a once a week thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this is where your technology background comes into play because you were able to, did you just do a mail merge inside of Microsoft Word? Or Yes, exactly. I had an Excel spreadsheet where I kept all the names and you know, everything in a database, you know, Excel. Mm-hmm. And then I just did a mail merge into Word. And you mm-hmm. know, like I said, I just had like the, I actually had a brother printer, which were not bad printers. Okay. Um, and, you know, just, just cranked them out and, mm-hmm. and did it like that. So it worked. And do you, do you still do that or? 
Um, I, I do not as much as I used to, because I've gotten some other things going that producing income as well. Sure. But yeah, it is something that I still do. Yeah. So does your practice now still kind of lean towards the real estate, the chapter 13 side where you're protecting assets or do you do, you do a lot of chapter sevens? It's funny that when I first started off, I was doing mostly chapter seven mm -hmm. and it was just, you know, there was a big need for it. There were a lot of people that just, they, they didn't have much in assets. And, mm -hmm. you know, if they were losing their home, if they already lost their home or whatever, you know, there was not much there anyway. So you get a lot of chapter sevens, but have been transitioning more into chapter 13s. And, you know, if you can get those going, you know, then that's it's more of a, a steady income stream coming in. As long as you just keep generating chapter 13s, you get those, uh, those revenue streams coming in every month from the trustee, which is not bad. Yeah, but I guess chapter sevens is a good way to start. You get that cash up front, which is a yeah, as a attorney just starting out, you you want that cash up front, right? Exactly. Exactly. Of course, if I could get cash up front on the thirteen, I'll do it too. But you know, those aren't quite as quite as easy to get. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about the Great Recession. You know, you started practicing in 2006. So you were banging out these letters. I guess the number of foreclosure notices must have been just order and magnitude larger back then, you know. but Oh, yeah, absolutely. What were those years like? I mean, do you even remember 2010 or you so? Um, you know, it's. It yeah, because it, it, it's still fresh in my mind. Like, the, the, I, you know, I talked to hundreds and hundreds of people that were facing foreclosures. And and the thing that kind of struck me during that time was that people were trying. They really were trying to get modifications. They were trying to figure out some way to, to do something. Uh, in many cases, you know, maybe they weren't able to even do a Chapter 13. They just couldn't make a plan work, right? They, just, they had lost their job. What if something had happened. You know, maybe they were just too far behind or, or too far underwater on their home, and it didn't make sense to keep it anymore. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I counseled hundreds of people and stuff like that. I had a guy that you know, he had a, a home and uh, the mortgage, the first mortgage was like 750000 And he had a second on there, which was like about 250000 mm -hmm. And the thing was only worth like maybe five hundred. Oh, wow. I'm like, you shouldn't keep this. You shouldn't try to keep it. I mean, right now you're just a renter and you're going to be that way for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, you're never going to get any equity in this thing. And he finally saw the light and said, you're right. It's like, why am I continuing trying to save this place that's just... I'm never going to get any equity in. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. Why don't you just let it go? And then we'll do a in chapter seven. We'll get rid of this, you know, this uh, second that's going to be out there is an unsecured debt at that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people, they, they saw it. So. Mm -hmm. How did you survive all that work? Did you hire up or did you just work really hard? Or um, Well, that's the thing. I, I'm kind of a workhorse, I guess. Mm -hmm. I was I was one man band. Some people call me the one man band aid, but it was, it was one of those situations where I just, I felt like as if I could handle the workload and, and do what I needed to do. And I had a process down and, you know, I, I handled everything. So I really, I didn't have any staff, no, you know, secretaries or paralegals. It was really just me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I learned a tremendous amount doing that and, it's just what worked for me. And, you know, I didn't get so, so large where I would need it, needed to get like two or three extra people or whatever. Cause I knew that there was going to be things were not going to continue, you know, the way they were in the heyday where everybody got to file as many cases as they wanted eventually. And, and there were a lot of firms actually that ended up hiring a bunch of people to handle that workload. 
and then ended up having to fire people later when, you know, the, the filing started tailing off, mm-hmm. which I didn't want to get in that position. Well, that's smart because filings are down about half from the peak in 2010. So. Yeah, exactly. Has that been an adjustment for you? just with the retainers being down in general? I, I think so. You know, it's, uh, it's made me also want to branch out into a few other things, but also kind of the transition there into Chapter 13, doing more of those. Because you get paid more for those over the over the long haul, and so you don't have to do quite as many of them mm-hmm. as, as you would Chapter 7. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm a marketing guy, so I'm always interested in other interesting marketing ideas that bankruptcy lawyers are willing to share. You do a lot of bankruptcy-related real estate work, so do you have any kind of cool tactics to maybe get referrals from real estate agents or anyone like that in the real estate field? Does that work for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, anybody that was you know, a real estate agent back then, you know, I, I filed bankruptcies for a lot of them. Mm. Uh, and so it just made kind of sense to me to kind of keep a, a good contact with them and uh, and kind of utilize that resource. And I've gotten referrals from, from many of them. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things, hey, I'm helping you out. You can help me out. You know, this is how I feed my family. That's how you feed yours. I'll help you when I can, that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've, you know, per- personal relationships are good. And, and that was another thing that I kind of liked about sort of being a solo. Invariably, when I would go to these trustee meetings, there would be somebody come up to me and say, are you my attorney? And I would say, if I was your attorney, you would know it, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it was true. I mean, and so having that personal relationship with my client, knowing you know, who they are at site and them knowing me, I think it has helped with get a lot of referrals, actually, mm-hmm. because I, I'm still getting lots of referrals from people that I filed like, you know, seven, eight years ago and whatnot. It's kind of funny that the, your referral source for real estate agents are all the real estate agents that filed for bankruptcy, and then right. then they could refer their their clients. But you didn't even have to do anything special to to build up that referral source. It just happened naturally. Not not really. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a self-supplying source, I guess. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing, actually. So a new mega trend looking today. Well, it's been building up for a long time. I graduated from college in 96, and people were talking about the explosion of student loans back then. And it's just gotten bigger and bigger. Of course, student loans aren't dischargeable in bankruptcy in the main. Right. You know, are you seeing this in your practice? How do you help all those clients that are burdened with student loans that they can't discharge? Well, that that's become, a like you said, a major issue. And there are some people that I just, I feel so so bad for them because there really isn't anything you can do to get rid of student loans other than try to show that you're basically completely incapacitated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's such a high standard. It's, just, it's ridiculous to try to meet it. You know, there are some attorneys who kind of specialize in that area. And so if I've got a special case where it looks like maybe they're on the, the you know, the border there, I'll, I'll kind of throw them over to some of those guys. But I, I think right now, a lot of folks, if they can get on an income-based repayment plan, you know, that may be about the best bet for them in, in many cases. Mm-hmm. And and I, I kind of heard something new just the other day, which I'm not sure if, if it's true or not, but I, I had a, a couple that had come in for consultation and they make between them almost 200000 a year, which is, you know, not bad, right? Yeah, it's not peanuts. And, and so, yeah, and so they... They file their taxes separately, and and the wife is making about eighty five or so, and she's on an income based repayment plan. 
And I'm like, really? And, and she says, yeah, he said, she said, we just filed the taxes separately and I submit it to the, you know, whoever looks at it. And, uh, it's one of those things where I guess you have to submit it every year and it kind of gets re, you know, recast if, you know, your income goes up or down. But yeah, that, that kind of surprised me. So I'm not sure if that's something that really works, but it's certainly an interesting idea. Did you hear, and when you heard the story, did you hear whether she has a $3 million student loan from five PhDs or something that would... Well, they, she did have a fairly significant amount, over 100000 I think oh, it was. Okay. So, yeah, but student loans, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if I've got a client that comes in and they've got a lot of student loans and maybe a little bit of, of unsecured debt, little bit meaning like maybe like ten or fifteen thousand of I mean, credit cards, medical bills, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But they've got like a hundred thousand in student loans. Mm-hmm. Then I'll try to push them into a thirteen because they'll pay off most of the money that they're going to be paying in is, is probably going to be going to the the student loans anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it just kind of makes more sense. Or we might try to do a chapter seven first and then put them in a thirteen to kind of. And keep the student loan folks off their back if they're way, way behind. So sure. Now I I work mainly with bankruptcy lawyers, but I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer. Are you suggesting that someone in a Chapter 13 with student loans that the student loan companies will accept a haircut or discount? Um, well, what happens is is if you've got a Chapter 13, and and you're going to say it's like a five year repayment plan. And, you know, there's a certain amount that goes toward the unsecured creditors, which the, the student loans are one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, if the student loan is like the biggest, the, the biggest part of it, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to get the majority of the money. Mm-hmm. And so the other stuff isn't going to get very much and would be discharged at the end. But the student loans, you're not paying them enough. You know, the interest and stuff accrues while you're in the 13. Yeah. So that's something that people don't always realize, but they should think about that. So after the three to five year payment plan ends, their chapter 13 ends, they're kind of... Well, they're, at least they've got the majority of the debt that was being paid during that time, at least it was to the chapter, to the, you know, the student loan as opposed to credit cards or somebody like that. Oh, that's a good point. All right, Aaron, we've, we've been talking about some heavy topics here. You told me another funny story that I don't know if I have to describe it. I don't want to describe it because I don't want to give away the punchline. <laughs> I thought maybe you could okay. tell me about the trustee meeting with a well-known yes. attorney. <laughs> you could tell that right. story because it was so funny. Yeah. yeah. So you learn a lot by just sitting in the audience at these trustee meetings. And you get to see other attorneys with their clients and get to see the issues and you know how the trustee reacts to different things. So I was sitting there one time with my client. And there was another attorney there. She's very well-known. And she was kind of had a little uh, grin on her face. And so I was kind of intrigued as to what was going on. And, uh, you know, her and her client uh, go to the table to meet with the trustee. And trustee goes through the standard questions and gets to the one about, uh, you know, what do you do for a living? And the client says, I'm a dominatrix. <laughs> and, and brings out a whip and kind of slants it on the table. <laughs> and <laughs> the trustee just turns beat red. And, you know, quickly, like, kind of closes that meeting out and goes on to the next one. But, I mean, all of us there were just like, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. You know, it couldn't have been a, a better, you know, ending to the meeting right there. You know, you told me that story just a little bit ago, but I'm laughing all over again. That's yeah. A, that's a good one. Just great, 
crazy stuff you see in these uh, in these meetings and you know just overall clients you know they they can be real funny yeah and I, I know you're also an author in fact well i read hashtag defendant which i think is a short novel is that fair to say yeah. novella yeah, that's what, right. do you, yeah. what do you say short novel yeah novella yeah. <laughs> or or you could just say it's a short story short story <laughs> so i have to ask what made you what made you start writing well, you know, I had uh, gotten interested in it back when I was actually in law school. And, you know, my brother-in-law used to do rewrites on screenplays, and it kind of got me interested in it. And so I had entered a contest, and and I won. And the prize was that you got to be the screenplay rewriter uh, for a Hollywood producer. Not a big-name producer, but, you know, it was, it was something anyway. And it kind of helped uh, pay the bills when I was in law school. So I, I became interested in writing at that time. And, you know, the screenplay game is, it's, it's, it's tough. You can't really get the big score in that. But, you know, once Amazon started coming around with the self-publishing stuff, I started becoming interested in that. And I kind of turned some of my screenplays into short stories, one of which was the one you read, Hashtag Defendant. Got a couple of others out there, but I've, I've got a series that I'm kind of working on, and I'm going to wait until I have two or three of the books ready to go so I can kind of make the most bang for my buck, so to speak, when I when I get it out there on the website. And um, but yeah, it's going to be a series about guess what? A bankruptcy attorney. Oh. <laughs> so some of the some of the interesting stories that I've uh, come across, to, you know, little scenarios and whatnot, will be worked in there. So we'll we'll change the names to protect the guilty, but it'll be fun. That's awesome. I- I'm curious: is there a whip in in the uh, in the new series? Well, you just never know. There, <laughs> there very well might be. You have to read it to find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't want to give any spoilers away, so I went back to the book, and this isn't a spoiler, but a plot element in your novel involves a technology-enabled justice system that kind of routinely makes plaintiffs settle or face paying a prohibitive fee if they lose in court. Exactly. I have to ask, is that is that inspired by real life, or is that out of your fertile imagination? <laughs> yeah, uh, fortunately, that hasn't come about yet. I would... I would hate to think of you know what what might become of our society if something like that were to were to happen. But uh, I just it's one of those things where you read 1984 or any of these other sort of dystopian future type of books, and you start thinking, hmm, how could I work the law into that? Yeah. Oh yeah, let's let's make this society where you know, <laughs> like you said, you, the the computers basically decide you know who wins and loses in cases. Uh-huh. So but yeah, that's that's kind of where that came from. It's like Judge Siri, right? Right. <laughs> so, so looking ahead, what are the goals for your practice? I mean, you've built your practice up to support yourself and your family. And, um, you know, what are your goals looking at over the next 10 years? Well, I want to just keep maintaining and, and doing what I've got to do there, keep things rolling. If there's new ways of, of marketing, I'm certainly open to, to looking at anything else that's new out there. I like to read a lot, read news articles about different things that are happening, mm-hmm. try to keep up on, on what other people are doing, not just in bankruptcy, but in general. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody's got some clever new idea for marketing something, Thing, you know, maybe I'll try it out, see what happens. Mm-hmm. I've always been, been willing to uh, at least try something and, and see, you know, what the possibilities are. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But sometimes it does, and you don't know until you try. So you can take the man out of technology, but you can't take the technology out of the man or the desire for uh, <laughs> right. for, for, for new and fun things exactly. to do. Exactly. I'm, I'm a perpetual nerd. 
that's that's okay. I am too. I, I read your I read your hashtag Defendant book on my Kindle, where I have five hundred to a thousand books purchased. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm not throwing stones. Yeah, absolutely. My goal for my writing would be to to get onto the uh, BookBub deal at one point in time and see if I can get some uh, you know get something going with that. But that'll wait until I've got the series ready. Yeah, I read a lot of series. If the first one's any good, I'll just buy the second and third one without even reading the description. In fact, I, I don't like to spoil it by reading the description. So I like your marketing strategy there. Well, excellent. Excellent. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And you know, good luck with all the stuff you're doing, too. Great. Thanks. I'll see you all in the next episode. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.